It's great to be with you all this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, let me give you a special welcome. My name is Will, and I serve on staff here with the church, and um, thank you for braving the coldest day in a couple hundred years to, to join us here in this incredibly hot room. We have a uh, team in the Dominican Republic, and uh, I think it's about 90 degrees down there, and they're down there on a missions trip, and we thought we would stand with them in solidarity, especially on this stage, by making it about the same temperature. Uh, so it's warm here this morning, but uh, in all sincerity, it's great to be with you. Um, this morning, we are going to be in the book of Philippians. Uh, we read through that last week, and we're going to spend some time looking at chapter 1 with that. If you don't have a Bible, though, we've got a bunch in the back, and we'd love for you to be able to read along with us. So if you'd like to read along, go ahead and raise your hand right now. We've got some friendly people handing them out, and they'd be happy to give one of those to you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, not even at home on the shelf somewhere, please take that Bible with you. That is our gift for you. We'd love for you to have it. Um, And uh, once you get it, we'll be in Philippians 1. Um, So let me start us off with a word of prayer, and we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, you're sovereign. You're sovereign, and there's nothing in this universe that happens outside of your control. You control and govern and run all things. By the word of your power, this universe is held together. We were created and we were saved all by your very word. And your sovereignty might be terrifying to us, if we didn't also know that you are unquestionably good. Always. You are always good. You are a sovereignly good God. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning, that whatever happens to be going on in their life today, that that reality of your sovereign goodness would be um, a sweet reminder and something that they rest in today. Let your word speak to us. Would you meet us in this place? I pray for those in our midst this morning um, that as we celebrate Valentine's Day, it's a cute and fun time, but maybe they've been single for a long time and the loneliness they feel is neither cute nor fun. Um, Just pray that you would meet even people in that place this morning and you would reassure them of your unfailing love that never leaves us, that never forsakes us. And for all of us, Lord, would your word just ring out and comfort and encourage us as we gather in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to Philippians 1 this morning, but to get there, I thought it would be helpful to look at the book of Acts a little bit um, before we get started there. And so uh, keep, keep a finger in Philippians 1, but turn over to Acts 1 also. We're just going to look at verse 8, and then we're going to look at another verse in Acts, and then we'll jump back over to Philippians. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is what uh, Jesus says to his, uh, his apostles and disciples just before he leaves. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what we have right here in Acts chapter 1 is a reiteration of the Great Commission. And some weeks before what's happened here in the book of Acts is that Jesus has died on the cross, bearing the sins of the world. And on the third day after that, he raises to new life and he offers redemption and freedom and salvation to anyone in the world that would call on his name. And he calls his closest followers to take what he's done and to be a witness to that 
in all the world. And so as we hit the book of Acts, we get this reiteration of that call to go in the world and be a witness for what Jesus has done. And so following that verse in, in, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 8, you see the disciples uh, begin to gather together constantly in prayer. And the Holy Spirit falls on them in the day of Pentecost and dwells among the, the people of God in a way that ha- he hasn't done it since the beginning of the world. And through that time, the Lord begins to add to their number, it says, day by day, those are being saved. And on one particular sermon that the apostle Peter preached, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And we get this in the early part of the book of Acts, this beautiful description of this church, this very peculiar people who are selling of their possessions to care for those in their midst in need. This group of people who have miracles that are being done in their midst that would shock all of us. They're gathering constantly in prayer. They're, they're earnestly seeking God. This new church that's established, and you're at this high point in redemptive history right there. But it's not long before opposition begins to set in. And so shortly after this description of the church, we see Peter and the apostle John, two of uh, Jesus' closest followers who are in prison for a period of time. And then shortly after that, uh, the, the first martyr, Stephen, whose responsibility it was to care for the widows who were amongst the the church at that time, is taken outside of Jerusalem and killed through stoning. And as he stands there, a man named Saul is holding the coats of those who were pelting the rocks at Stephen, encouraging this act of killing the very first Christian. And so we start with this very high-level, awesome view picture of the church that goes into a very dark moment. And then if you turn over to Acts 8.1, we read this. This is right after... Stephen is stoned. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, there's this call to go into all the world and to be witnesses to what Jesus has done. And then Acts chapter 8, verse 1, there's this picture of persecution. And I once heard a preacher create a very memorable phrase that said this, if you don't do Acts 1, verse 8, God gives you Acts 8, verse 1. That's Christian preacher phrasing at its finest. That's memorable, that's a good phrase, but I'm not totally on board with it because it makes it sound like the persecution that the church began to experience was somehow punitive. That the church had done something wrong and the Lord was sending punishment. This church that he loves, that he died for, that he's punishing them, essentially saying, okay, church, we can either do this the easy way, Acts 1-8, or we can do this the hard way, Acts 8-1. And so I think it's a memorable phrase, but I think perhaps a more appropriate way of phrasing what we see happening in the early church is saying sometimes the way that God accomplishes Acts 1-8 is by allowing Acts 8-1 to happen. And what I hope is unequivocally clear to us this morning in our time together is that adversity advances the gospel. Adversity advances the gospel. I'm not so much saying that uh, participating with God in his mission is a life free from care and and difficulty. Definitely not saying that. And I'm not even saying that uh, the gospel advances in spite of adversity. But sometimes the very tool that God uses to advance his plans in this world is through very adverse circumstances. The gospel advances through adversity. 
And this definitely isn't to say that God is somehow the cause of evil, but, but in his sovereign governance, he takes that which was meant for evil and he uses it for good. He takes adversity and he advances the gospel. He does that both big picture corporately for the church worldwide, but he also does that in our own individual lives sometimes as well. And I think that this is important for us to spend some time talking about this morning because our natural response when we're struck with adversity, even as Christians, is not usually one of confidence, one of faith that God will turn this into good, but we usually have a very different response. Usually when adversity hits us, we're not saying God is in control. He can use this for his good. I think our more natural response when adversity sets in is to ask God, where are you? Where are you? How could you let this happen? Do you even love us? Are you even real? That's much more our tendency when difficulty and adversity and suffering sets in. Not one of confidence and hope, but one of doubt and despair. But it's sometimes in the most terrible circumstances of our lives that God takes those things and he uses it to advance his plan in our life and ultimately around the world. And I'm not trying to minimize the reality that what a lot of you are going through is a small or light thing. I recognize that there are some of you in this room who have suffered in ways that I couldn't even begin to understand or know. And you've walked through pain that is completely foreign to me. And this isn't a trite platitude that ignores the reality of that pain and flippantly says, hey, it'll all work out in the end. Don't worry about it. But this is about a real God who's entered into our world and experienced more adversity and hardship and suffering than we'll ever know. But God turned that evil that Jesus experienced into salvation for us all. Because in the goodness and in the wisdom and in the sovereignty of God Almighty, he takes that which is meant, that which was meant for evil, and he uses it for good. It's not lost on me this morning that there may be some of you gathered here with us and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're even skeptical of the Christian, Christian faith. Um, my hope for you this morning is that even as we discuss how God uses adversity um, in the lives of his people, that there would be tremendous relevance for you as well. Because maybe here this morning, uh, you find yourself in a very hopeless situation. Maybe you've been there before or you're there now. Maybe that was brought on by you or maybe it's something that's been done by you, by, by, to you. And you're gathered around a group of people who have had very dark things happen in their past whom the Lord has redeemed and turned around for his good and for his plans in their lives. And so as we discuss a God who can take these awful realities of our lives and redeem them, there's tremendous relevance for you even as well. And so I want to consider all together this morning how adversity advances the gospel, which gets us to where we're headed. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. You can read along with me. This is what the Apostle Paul says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy 
and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed ashamed at all, but that will have full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So let's set up a little bit of context here in the book of Philippians. So after this Acts chapter 8 verse 1 persecution that begins to plague the church, the leading member of this persecution, a man named Saul, is knocked off his horse while he's going to find more uh, Christians to imprison and kill. And the Lord Jesus turns his life around and makes him one of the chief apostles and the best church planter and evangelist in the history of the church. And so after that, uh, Paul continues to go through the Roman Empire and begins to plant churches everywhere. And if you read in Acts chapter 16, I'd encourage you to take a look at this when you get home later. You see a series of uh, conversions that take place in the city of Philippi that are just awesome. Paul is preaching and people are coming to faith. And through that, a church is planted there in the city of Philippi. And Paul continues on through his missionary journeys through the, through the Roman world. And sometime later, Paul writes this letter to that same church that he started back in Philippians, or in Acts chapter 16. And, and he's making an argument that's similar to what we've already said this morning. So if you look in verse 12, this is what he says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. So what's happened to Paul here? Well, after Paul planted the church in Philippi, continued his ministry through the Roman Empire, it was met with severe uh, persecution and difficulty. And uh, at this particular time that he's writing this letter, Paul is sitting in prison. And he's locked up, unable to do ministry, unable to visit the churches that he loves. And he's not only imprisoned, but his very life hangs in the balance as the prospect of death is a very real one for him. So he's locked up. He doesn't know when he's going to get out or if he'll even make it out alive for that matter. And so if you can imagine this new group of Christians in Philippi, how worried they would be and how concerned they would be both for Paul and what that would mean for the future of their church. What would that mean for the advance of the gospel worldwide? And as they're concerned with this, in light of this, Paul comforts this young church by saying, listen, don't fret because what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul's under tremendous adversity and opposition and he says, I'm locked up, I might die, and this is actually causing the gospel to advance. Notice he doesn't say that it's an easy task to, to be involved in this gospel ministry, and he doesn't even say that the gospel advances even in spite or through adversity. But he says that this adversity is actually instrumental in advancing the gospel. My sufferings, as Paul frequently says, frequently demonstrates that, that this is not a deviation from my mission, but are actually an integral part of it. And by and large, this is the pattern of how the gospel has advanced through the entirety of church history. 
that when Satan and the world launch its most furious attacks against the church to stop its growth, those delivering that adversity actually end up furthering, furthering the cause of the gospel instead. So as the heat turns up and adversity sets in, the church is purified and grows and advances. And so if you're here this morning and you are indeed skeptical of the Christian faith, what I would invite you to consider is one of the most compelling arguments for the legitimacy of this is that every world empire has done whatever it could to stop this small movement that started in Jerusalem and it's only continued to grow even under the most dire circumstances because God is behind this and there's nothing that he allows this movement of the gospel of his son to stop it. And there's a picture of this that really captured it in the 1500s during the French Reformation. And on March 1st, there was a particularly terrible manifestation of this type of persecution. And one historian recounted that a French governor took 200 armed men with him and went out through this region of France hunting anyone who associated themselves with the Protestant faith. And in their pursuit of the French Protestants, they came upon 200 of them I guess not too much different than uh, those of us gathered here this morning. They were gathered in a barn, and those armed men set that barn on fire, killed some 50 of those uh, French Christians, and injured many more. And that event on March 1st, 1562, launched in the nation of France during this time of the Reformation a very significant outbreak of persecution and atrocities that happened all over the place. And as the French government was wondering how might these Protestants respond to this, uh, this violence that is being waged against them, this is what John Calvin wrote in response. He says, It is in truth for God's church in whose name I speak to endure blows and not strike them. Remember, though, that this is an anvil which has broken many a hammer before. So Calvin is pointing out to those who are waging war against the church in France that as the world has tried to stop the church through various means in history, every attempt to stop the advance of the church's mission has only served to advance it further, not hinder it. And so as we consider this this morning, I think there's perhaps some helpful lessons for us in the 21st century, even with the kinds of things we've been walking through together as a church over the past few weeks. So Let me be clear, I'm not at all saying that sojourn is somehow under persecution or that what we're walking through is somehow comparable to Paul's imprisonment or what's happened through church history. I'm simply trying to put this notion in check that the gospel advances through simple and easy means. Because in verse 12, Paul demonstrates to us that in the wisdom of God, adversity and hardship, even suffering, are essential tools for the advancement of God's kingdom. So what is it then about this adversity that Paul sees? What's, what's causing the gospel to advance that's happening in this circumstance in the Philippian church? Well, Paul gives us at least four reasons. I want to walk through those together with the rest of our time. The first reason that the gospel is advancing in the midst of hardship and adversity is because um, through hardship, the worth of Christ is proclaimed. Through adversity, the worth of Christ is proclaimed. You know, you can often tell the value of something by what you're willing to do, to, what you're willing to endure for its sake. The length you're willing to go, the difficulty you're willing to endure usually speak, speaks of the value of that thing that you're pursuing. And so if you found my wife right now and you asked her, hey, Chelsea, how are you doing? 
her response would, if she was honest, would be, I'm terrible. And the reason for that is that she's in the last two weeks of a long nine-month pregnancy. We'll be having a, a baby girl in, in a couple weeks from now. Um, and, and it's been a rough time. There's been irritation, nagging, pressure from all sides. And that's just from me and the other kids. That's not even the pregnancy. Um, so in the first trimester, there was uh, constant nausea, vomiting. She felt terrible during that time. And then the nausea passed away, and she was met with new challenges and pains from the general minute-to-minute discomfort, lightheadedness, back pain, cramping all the time. It's tough, man. It's a hard thing that they endure. Um, and now at the, the tail end of the pregnancy, she hardly gets any sleep. Just finding a position that she can fall asleep in is, is, a, is a struggle in and of itself. Um, and making it around the house for small tasks is a, is a challenge as well. Um, so it's been a long nine months for her. It's been a long nine months. So, so here's the question, though. In a couple weeks, when we're holding our little baby girl, if someone were to walk up to her and ask, was it really worth all that pain and all that difficulty that you walked through the past nine months? The answer would be unequivocally, absolutely, yes. Absolutely it was worth it. Because the the value of this little child that, that we now have was worth what we were willing to endure to have her. Because the value of this new life surpasses the pain that Chelsea had to go through to get us here. Because we demonstrate the value of the thing uh, of something by what we're willing to endure for its sake. And so in verse 13, if you look down, Paul says this. He says, um, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So as the Roman guard and those around him who see Paul's chains and ask the question, What are these chains for, Paul? Why are you in prison? He responds, These chains that I have are for the sake of Christ, and this Christ is absolutely worth every bit of it. It's the, funny that the thing that was meant to slow the advance of the gospel and to diminish its worth is actually being used on, to have the opposite effect. By locking Paul up, he's demonstrating to everyone who sees him that, the worth, that, that Jesus is worth any hardship that they throw his way, and the gospel thereby spreads. Because when we endure hardship for the sake of Jesus, we're making a statement to the world that Jesus is absolutely and in every way worth it. So for you, when you turn down a significant promotion because in some ways it might compromise your values for the, for the sake of Christ, you're making a statement that Jesus is worth it. Or when you undergo even at Mason or at school ridicule and mockery because of your faith, you're making a statement that Jesus is worth it. When you sacrifice the comforts of living in the United States to go overseas to be a missionary and to proclaim the gospel there, you're making a statement that Jesus is worth it. And even when you hang around a church that's going through some hard times and you endure that, you're making a statement, Jesus is absolutely worth every bit of it. And all of that, like Paul in chains, we're demonstrating the worth of Christ by what we're willing to endure for his sake. So that's the first reason Paul gives us in verse 13, that, that the, the reason that the gospel is advancing through adversity is because the worth of Christ is proclaimed in that very adversity. Then he gives us another reason in verse 14, and that's that in adversity, ordinary people step up to the plate. In, in Paul's adversity, ordinary people stepped up to the plate. If you see in verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so as Paul is locked up here and he's unable to carry out the mission that he's been entrusted with, he's excited because other people who've been emboldened by Paul are now preaching the gospel themselves. So Paul, even though he can't preach and can't carry on out the mission, he recognizes that it's still advancing even in more effective ways because others have stepped up to the plate. But did you notice in verse 14 who he's referring to when he describes the gospel advancing through, through other people? He's, he says, I'm locked up, but the gospel is still advancing because other apostles have been emboldened to, to share their faith. Does he say, um, I'm locked up and I can't carry out this mission, but it's still advancing because the pastors of the Philippian church have been more emboldened to share the faith. Or the gospel is still advancing in my imprisonment because my podcast subscription has skyrocketed through the experience. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, brothers, ordinary people have risen to, to the occasion in the midst of this adversity and are carrying on this mission themselves. Ordinary people, he says, brothers have been more emboldened to go out and share the faith. And if you think about it, there's a little bit of absurdity in that statement. Because Paul is the greatest theologian, writer, church planter, evangelist, like you name it, his pedigree is stacked. Because by his gifting, he is far and away the most capable person to carry out this mission. But he's excited that ordinary people who who are far less gifted than him have stepped up to the challenge. Like, when is it ever advantageous for a mission for inferior people to to step up in the place of people who are more qualified, right? Like, in the world of sports, if your quarterback goes down and you have to bring up the backup, almost always your season is finished, right? Like, only in Washington, only with the Redskins, does the fan base applaud when the starter gets taken out so the guy on the bench, Kirk Cousins, could come in. But that's because Kirk Cousins was more qualified, right? Like, it, it's not advantageous for the mission of anything for less qualified people to stand in the place of those who, who are clearly better. And that's, that's what we see here. So, so Paul's on the sidelines. He's unable to preach. And he says that this is actually better for the mission because other brothers have stepped up to preach the word. And the reason for that is because the effectiveness of this mission is not found in the people who proclaim it, but in the very message itself. As Paul says in uh, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. This gospel word that we proclaim is the power of God unto salvation. So it really doesn't matter who's proclaiming it because the, the power lies within the message. The message is being proclaimed, that's what saved, and because that's what was taking place through ordinary people like you and me, the Apostle Paul rejoiced in that. And so what I'm wondering as it pertains to our own church family here is that in the midst of adversity, who in our midst is going to rise to the occasion for us? Because the Great Commission still stands. There's still thousands of people that surround us who don't know Christ. And, and Jesus is calling ordinary people like you and me to rise to the occasion with everything that we have going on. And there may be some of you in, in this room who have been on the sidelines, so to speak, at least partially as it relates to what God is calling us to as a church. And I want to just invite us to, to, to step up, to, to, to rise to the occasion like these Philippian brothers did so that the mission could continue to advance and the gospel could continue to be proclaimed. So Paul sees that the adversity is advancing the gospel first by the worth of Christ being proclaimed through it, 
Secondly, by ordinary people rising to the occasion. And then the third reason is because adversity properly aligns our priorities. There's something about adversity that helps us get our priorities in order. If you see in in verse 15, there's this really interesting discussion that that he has about these people who were uh, preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and were even doing it in a way to to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. And, and there's a lot of questions as to what Paul really means by that. But, but when he says that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not, serious, not uh, sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there's, there's at the very least a controversy that exists between Paul and some other Christians. And they have some sort of issue with Paul, and, and they're, they're using his imprisonment for their own benefit in preaching Christ with some weird motives. We don't know much more than that, but that's what's going on here. But Paul's response to that is rather staggering. He says, even though they're preaching Jesus in a manner to afflict me, and there's strong disagreement between these two parties, Paul says, Jesus is still being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's applauding people who are preaching Christ in such a manner as to inflict him in his imprisonment. And I don't think this is like a pretend, like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, like, oh, well, Christ is still being proclaimed, so I guess I'll rejoice. Like, I th- he's really rejoicing because one of the major themes in the book of Philippians is authentic rejoicing in the midst of very difficult circumstances. If you read the, the letter, that's found all over the place. So he's saying, yes, there's relational issues. Yes, they're carrying out ministry in such a way that's detrimental to me. But what's most important here is that Jesus is being preached. And in that, I authentically rejoice. Because for Paul, when adversity hit, his priorities got put into the proper, proper order. What was most important for him was not his freedom, not winning an argument with his opponents, not even his very own life was most important to him. What was most important, the greatest priority, was that Jesus was honored and praised and glorified, regardless of what that meant for the Apostle Paul. There's just something about adversity that helps us focus on what's most important. And I've seen that even begin to play out in our own midst as a church, as we've been reminded that the glory of Jesus is what matters most in our midst, regardless of what that means for our church, regardless of what that means for our future. That's why we're here. And if Jesus is glorified, at the end of the day, we'll be good. So the gospel advances through adversity because it it, uh, proclaims the worth of Christ. It brings other people to, to step up. It straightens out our priorities. And then lastly, Adversity advances the gospel because it causes us to pray effectively. It causes us to pray effectively. Adversity has a funny effect of making people desperate, and it's usually desperate people who pray. Desperate people pray. And when the Philippian church found out that Paul was imprisoned, they resorted to what seemed like the only option for them in the moment of their own desperation. And so he says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is a desperate group of people who resort to prayer. And did you notice that Paul actually is expecting something to happen through their prayers? Like this isn't just wishful thinking or therapeutic meditation to help it make through a hard to help them make it through a hard time. Like 
Sometimes we, we treat prayer like this kind of medication that helps us through difficult moments. So when tragedy strikes, we'll say things like, our thoughts and prayers go out to those who are affected by this. And we don't usually mean that those prayers will actually accomplish something. What we're really saying, it's more like a kind gesture or a positive thinking that we're sending their way. Or we have this expression that says, um, we'll just throw up a prayer. Like it's some sort of last-ditch attempt or some Hail Mary pass to change a circumstance, but you don't really actually expect it to do anything. When you look at Paul's words here, he doesn't view prayer like that at all. Like, uh, he, he in fact expects the prayers of the Philippian church to make a real difference in his situation. He sees the adverse circumstance creates desperation in them, and in that desperation, they make requests to God that make an actual real difference in the world in which we live. He doesn't know what that difference will ultimately be, but he knows that the, ch- church's de- the, the, the prayers of a desperate church can move the hand of Almighty God. The prayers of a desperate church can truly move the hand of an Almighty God. He says, I know, I know that through your prayers, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will turn this out for my deliverance. So the mission of God advances through adversity because it forces us to pray. And prayer has a real effect on God and the world that God governs. And so as it relates to us as a church family, if we're being real, prayer hasn't often been a great strength for us, right? We can just acknowledge that and say that. That's not uh, something that, that we often spend a ton of time doing together. Um, and all of us, of course, share, share a piece of the blame in that. Um, but over the past month, do you know what I've started noticing, what I've started noticed happening all through our church, all through our community here? Is that people are coming together to pray because we're desperate and, and, and we're crying out to God saying, this is hard. We need you to show up. We need you to help us. We can't do this without you. And I think that's the exact posture that God wants us to always be in, whether in adverse times or good times to be a people who are of, of desperate prayer, the, type, the kinds of prayer that really ex- expect to move the hand of God in our midst. And so I want to call on us this morning to continue to pursue prayer as a church family through this time, um, to invite people into your home maybe one day a week and just, just spend time praying for our church and for this community. We already have missions prayer that's happening every week at uh, 9.30, I think it starts upstairs. You can jump in on that. Maybe we can start an, another prayer meeting before that one where we're just praying for our church. So it'd be a great way for some of us to rise to the occasion with what we have going on in our midst because the gospel advances through adversity because it brings us to pray. So in wrapping this up, I know we've been going through a lot as a church family and it's been hard. It's been adverse. It's been disappointing at times. But what I hope is clear to all of us is that this is not without a purpose. It's not without a purpose because sometimes God's strategy is to advance his purposes in the world, not doing it without adversity, not even doing it in spite of adversity, but using difficult, hard things to be the very instrument that advance his purposes in our lives and around the world. I don't know exactly why or or what's going to happen, but we can be confident of this. The Lord Jesus will have his way in the end and that which was meant for evil will be turned to accomplish the opposite result. And so I hope this is a helpful reminder for us as a church family that the Lord is in the business of taking the things that were meant for evil and using them for good. 
using the hardships and the adversity that stems from living in a fallen world and turning those things into something absolutely beautiful. I hope we can begin to see this on a big picture scale in the life of our church, but even individually in our own lives through the difficult things that we walk through. Maybe as we look at this high-level picture of how God uses these difficult circumstances to advance his purposes in the world, that we could have some confidence that he would do the very same thing in our own lives with the ugly things that we face day to day as well. As I think of that, about this in my own life, um, one of the most difficult moments uh, for me growing up, I was probably about 12 years old. Um, I was in, uh, I guess, the beginning of high school, and my mom came down with a very significant cancer diagnosis. And uh, I wasn't even a Christian at that time, uh, but I remember like, that being the most earnest I'd ever prayed before in my life. Like, I really cried out to God that he would heal my mom and, and save my family through this. And that was a really dark moment for our family as I think back on that. And there were so many questions as to why is this happening? What good could possibly come from this? Um, but the other dark thing that was happening at my family during that time was that my parents were really close to getting a divorce. Like they were really having, they had been through several years of a really hard time and they were uh, one foot out the door, meeting with lawyers, all that kind of stuff. It, it was almost finished for them. But in my mom's cancer diagnosis, they decided to stay together and to try to work through this stuff. And my mom made it out on the other side. She's doing good today. Um, but she, my, my parents ended up staying together for that. And that would be even more significant for me a few years later because by the time I was 16, if you would have seen me, I was a complete drug addict. I was an absolute train wreck, and I was just a few years from either being in a prison cell or in a coffin. And had the Lord not given my mom cancer in that moment, uh, I would have been hopeless because my parents would have been split up. But because my parents stayed together, they were able to send me to a, to a program in Florida for boys with very significant life issues. And in that program, they, they preached the gospel. And I met Jesus, and he turned my life around. And um, we don't often get on this side of eternity a picture of how God uses the really dark things in our life for good. But that was just a small glimpse of God taking something very dark and very broken and using it for good. So I stand before you here today because of the kindness of God to take that which was evil and turn it around for good. And so if the Lord can take cancer and turn it into this here this morning, if the Lord can take Paul's imprisonment and use that to advance the gospel all over the world, what, that, what might that mean for your own life individually? What might that mean for your own addiction that you've walked through that's been very difficult and very ugly? How might the Lord redeem that and turn that around and use that for his glory? How might the Lord take your struggle as a single mom and use that struggle to be able to minister to other people who are in a very difficult spot themselves? How might the Lord take your divorce that you contributed to and were responsible for and redeem that and somehow use that for his good? How might the Lord take your struggle with infertility that you've had for years and use that to bring little kids into your home who don't have a mom and dad? Like there's, we could go down the list of all these circumstances of how God takes very ugly things, those things which were meant for evil, and he uses them for good. And I have confidence that he can do that in your life as well. And what gives me the most confidence in this is that God took the single most wicked event in the history of the universe, 
the crucifixion of his perfect son who was blameless and innocent and he was killed by wicked men and God took that most evil event and he turned that around to mean redemption for all of us. God takes that which was meant for evil and he uses it for good. And when we come to communion every week, we're celebrating that reality that our God is sovereign and nothing happens beyond his control. Instead of leaving us as we were, he sent his son to die in our place. When we come to the table, that's what we celebrate together. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, as we come forward to take communion, I would actually invite you to stay in your seats because when we come forward and we take this bread and this juice, we're remembering the reality that Jesus has in fact died for us. And we embrace that reality with our whole lives. But if you don't embrace that yet, then this is just a hollow meal. So I'd invite you just to hang in your seat. But don't just let this time pass you by. I would invite you to pray. And instead of coming forward to the table to take communion, cry out to to the Lord today to save you from your sins. Because in the death of Jesus, he can unite you to a God who is so sovereign that he can take some of the darkest things of your life and he can turn them around for good. That's the kind of God we serve. And I would invite you this morning to take Christ, to take what he's done on your behalf, to believe that he's died in your place and be forgiven of your sin. And so just hang out in your seat. The rest of you, we've got two tables for communion in the back. We've got two in the front. You can come forward when you're ready and let's celebrate the reality that Jesus has died on our behalf and that he takes the most broken, messed up, adverse situations and he has the power to turn those things to good. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. There's nothing that happens that's outside of your control. I know there's people in this room who are walking through difficult things and are wondering, how could you possibly let this happen? But I pray that you, uh, if you're not going to give them the answer to that question, that you would give them a great confidence in a God who loves them and who gave himself for them. Lord Jesus, we we thank you that you have... um, taken the darkness and the brokenness of this world and turned it around for good. Help us to celebrate that reality that it was only possible through your death in our place and your resurrection on the third day. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time. We commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name, amen.